everybody. Welcome back. This is week 36 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. This week we get to wrap up the book of 1 Corinthians and we only have three chapters to cover. <laughs> I'm just a little bit excited about that. We've had some intense study weeks. I think the reason we only have three chapters this week is because of the weight of the doctrine that's nestled into these three chapters. In fact, right in the middle, you're going to hear this incredible discourse about resurrection. And since that's the pinnacle miracle that almost everything else in the gospel hinges around, then I think it's one of those things we have to take our time with. I just feel for Paul. You know, in the last couple of weeks, how I told you, it seems as if he's got so much that he wants to give the Corinthian saints, but because they've atrophied a little bit in their testimony, he can't, you know, he, he can't, he's like Moses coming down the mountain. And I just feel like it's, it, you almost get a feel this week of what Paul has in his mind. We don't get a detailed account of Paul's vision, but we do get bits and pieces of what he has come to know and understand about the Savior and how much he hopes to share it. It just, it reminded me so much of what we studied two years ago when we were in the Doctrine and Covenants together and we studied DNC section 76 and it, just the enormity of that vision. And then Joseph's attempts to put it into words, you know, words that the saints could appreciate given their testimony level and just mortal words even. You just could feel that in his, in the writings about section 76. And that's how I feel about this week's study. What is interesting to me is the reason he can't give it to them in the fullness that I think he hopes to is because they haven't kept things in memory. You can see that in the introduction part of the Come Follow Me manual. Because they've let some of those core fundamentals slide, they're not quite ready for this meat that he has, that he could offer them. The good news, you guys, is that we can. I just, as I was studying and reading, I'm like, but if I'm keeping things in memory, if I've been studying and paying attention to Paul's words and the words of the Savior and the messages throughout this year, then I'm holding those things in memory and I can know things. And that's what I found so exciting about this week's study. Even though I could feel that he was holding some things back, the Spirit taught me things between the lines. I don't know how to describe it, you guys. I just found... There were some really sweet moments where the Spirit could speak to me a fullness that isn't quite in the verses. And I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time talking about my experiences because I think they'll be unique to each one of us. What I will testify of throughout this week is that you can get those understandings for yourself. I just think, well, President Nelson said it. He said, to those who have eyes to see, God is giving away the mysteries of the universe. I wouldn't say I learned some great mystery about the gospel this week, but I did get some clarification on my life and how God sees me and how he will care for the people I love. And it was sweet. So you guys, there's so much to get out of this week's study, just in the words themselves and also in the spirit that's between the lines. I promise it's worth your time. Grab your scriptures, grab your notes. It's time to get started. Paul's going to pick up right where he left off when we start in 14, because we were just talking about the gift of char charity and how it is the best of all the gifts and we should seek after it. In fact, I feel like he ups the ante in verse one, because he says, follow after charity. And when you look in the footnotes, you can see that that means pursue, follow eagerly, earnestly. To me, this is like the difference between if I lose some little thing like an earring versus if I lose my phone. <laughs> if I lose my phone, I am eagerly following after it. It is something I am determined to find because I know the happiness and the help I get 
if I have it. I think that's how he wants us to seek after charity. He doesn't want us to just kind of go about our day and hope that that gift comes to us. We're supposed to pray for it, you guys. We're supposed to seek it out. And he promises that if we seek it earnestly, especially for the edification of the church, then we'll receive it. We'll have opportunities to grow that characteristics in ourselves. I just think there's power in that promise. I think it's really powerful, especially for where he goes the rest of the chapter. Most of chapter 14 is focused on comparing these two different gifts. So he's going to compare the gift of tongues, you know, the ability to speak in another language or in a language that's not understood by others, or and compare it to the gift of prophecy, which remember we studied this in the Old Testament a little bit because there were women who were called prophetesses and we were wondering like, how does that shake out? Since they can't hold the office of a prophet, what does that mean? And there's a big difference between the office of a prophet and his role in the priesthood and the gift of prophecy. Gift of prophecy is something anyone, men and women, can acquire. In fact, Paul's encouraging all of us to get it. There's great quotes in the notes this week from other prophets in our dispensation who say the same thing. This is a gift we should all seek after. Because prophecy just means you're able to testify powerfully of Jesus Christ. And that is something we need. The reason we need it is because it edifies the church. So Paul's going to contrast these two gifts, gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, and talk about we should set down our desires for one and hope for the other. Not that the gift of tongues is a negative thing. I mean, you saw an outpouring of that on the day of Pentecost. There is absolute beauty in the gift of tongues, but it is not what can build and unify the church. And Paul's going to teach them why in chapter 14. So if you look in verse three, I love the way he phrases it, but he that prophesieth or speaks with that gift of prophecy unto men to edification, to exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. He wants us to take the goodness we're coming to understand and beam it out to others. That's what's going to cause unity among these saints. There's a great metaphor he uses around verse eight. And this is when he talks about a trumpet that makes an unknown sound. Elder Holland has a great talk about this, about teachers, that we need to teach in clarity and truth because an unknown sound isn't going to call people to action. <laughs> and what it reminded me of is Jason and his whistle. So you might not ever know this, but since I'm making these videos for my posterity, they will know. <laughs> Jason has this really loud, shrill whistle that he can do like in the back of an auditorium and our kids on the stage or on the football field can hear it. You know, like it is a very shrill sound. And our kids know from vast experience that if Jason whistles in our house, they have to immediately come down the stairs and find wherever he is. It's this call to action. It means we're going to have scripture study, we're going to have prayer, we're going to something. In fact, when we were early in our parenting years, I teased him that he was a lot like that dad on the sound of music with his obnoxious whistle. <laughs> like, that's the kind of parent you are, Jason. <laughs> but it, you know, as much as I Teased him for it. Like it works like a charm. I can call up the stairs and be like, you guys, come on down. If Jason whistles, they all come running. <laughs> so there's value in it. And that's what Paul's trying to teach. He's like, it doesn't help to speak the truth in an unknown sound. You know, if I called everybody to dinner and I did it in this quiet, soft voice, no one would come to the table and no one would be filled. What he wants us to do is to speak with edification, with our goal being to edify the saints, to strengthen them from within, and to build up. So that's what you're going to see in the verses. I love the way it's phrased in 12. This is where he says, Even so, ye for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. He's, I think, complimenting their earnestness. They're earnestly seeking after the gift of tongues, probably because it's very demonstrative is the right word. Like it's something that other people can see and be like, oh, you must be super righteous. You can speak with the gift of tongues. I only say that because 
you know, we all have those tendencies. Like you get up to bear your testimony or you go to teach gospel doctrine and you want to share some like really cool truth that you learned or there's some really heart-wrenching story. And it's not bad. Your intent is to testify of God. What Paul is teaching is there's a better way to do it. If you actually focus on the fundamental doctrines, then the Spirit can be the actual teacher. The Spirit can strengthen and edify. I love this because you guys, I was just in the Book of Mormon this morning. I was studying the very end of 2 Nephi. So between like 31 and 33, this is the very end of Nephi's life where he's just wrapping things up. And he talks about hearing the voice of God. He talks about hearing the voice of the Savior. He has all this guidance and all of it is so simple. In fact, there's a great verse. I wrote it down on my margin. 33.6. So if you go there, you can find it. He says, I glory in plainness. I glory in truth. I glory in Jesus for he hath redeemed my soul from hell. Of all the things that Nephi could have said at the end of his incredible life as a prophet, he glories in truth and plainness. And that's what Paul says too. He's like, of all the things I could teach you and say to you, being able to speak in plainness and simplicity is what will really pull your hearts together because it can be understood. The same way the Savior demonstrated, right? In his life, all of his ministry is teaching simply and purely and sometimes in layers. You know, he'll teach in a parable so that anybody around can understand at their level. That's what Paul's inviting us to do. So if you look in the verses, you can see his guidance to it. So he says, for example, in 16, Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at the giving of things, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? He's like, how can anyone else hear your testimony and say amen if they can't understand it? I think for us, it's similar. If you give this dazzling testimony that no one can relate to, how do we say amen to that? You know, it needs to be something that I can relate to and understand. So he's like, keep your, keep your testimonies, especially those that you're giving out to others, clear and discernible so that the spirit can witness into their hearts. 19, he says this, yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding than by my voice. I might teach others also than 10,000 words in unknown tongue. Paul is someone who I'm sure could, has mastered the gift of tongues and could dazzle them. And what he's saying is, I'd rather speak five words that are clear and plain and precious than 10,000 to make you, you know, be in awe of my spiritual gifts. It's an invitation for us to step back and focus on those fundamental truths. I also love how it's phrased in 22. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, for, but for them which believe. The gift of tongues has its place. I think it has its purpose. It certainly had a purpose on that day of Pentecost. Remember how many baptisms happened after that? Thousands of baptisms happened because of the gift of tongues. But it wasn't the gift itself and the amazing fanciness of the gift that brought people to the waters. What brought people to the waters is they could understand the doctrines in their own native tongue. That's what the gift of tongues was for. It had a purpose. It was to edify and teach the gospel to those who spoke a bunch of different languages. So to seek after it just to impress people who are already believers and already in the chapel, we're missing the point, right? The same way I shouldn't go into gospel doctrine class with this hope to like dazzle all the members with my impressive knowledge of something. It just, it won't edify and it won't last. And so he warns us. He also talks a little bit in these verses about the unity that's lacking. You know, he warns that if we speak like this, this is around like 23 and 24. He says, if people come into your congregation and speaking in tongues or everybody calling out in loud ways, 
it, it will be disorienting to them. In fact, they won't feel edified when they come. I think it's another reason we have to be careful how we teach because you just never know who's going to come into your classes. I had this a few times in YSA where I didn't realize there was someone who was there who was not a member of the church. And I was so grateful that the lesson manual verses are all focused on these fundamentals of, you know, the creation, the fall, the atonement. Like there's, they're all on these key fundamentals. I taught a whole lesson on the plan of salvation to a girl who was, you know, curious about the church. And it's just, I think that's, that should tell us something. Every lesson we teach in church, every testimony I bear at that pulpit, I should bear with the, something that could be understood by anybody who walks in, which means I need to be careful that I'm not using words that will confuse, that I'm creating unity. What it reminded me of is, so Jason and, and my brother-in-law, Scott, they both went on Spanish missions and they can speak in Spanish. And early in our marriage, I can totally remember sitting in a room and when they didn't want me to understand what they were saying, because they were saying something funny or playful or whatever, they would just start talking in Spanish. And it drove me crazy because it felt isolating. You know, I just think it's, it, it creates separation. And what Paul wants to create is unity. So he's like, set, set all that down. The gift of tongues has its use and it can edify you individually. It's not for coming together as a congregation. Seek for the gift of prophecy that can bring people in. Um, so when you flip the page, you'll see a little bit more. He says in 26, let all things be done unto edifying. I actually really like the addition that's in 28. This was comforting to me. He said, but if there be no interpreter, meaning if there's a gift of tongues, like the Doctrine and Covenants teaches, there should always be an interpreter present. Otherwise, there's no point to the gift of tongues. So he says, but if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. You guys, I like this. I think what he's, this is how I interpret this. I think he's saying like, you're going to have thoughts and experiences and understandings that are not for general consumption. That doesn't mean they're not good and it doesn't mean they don't come from a good source. It just means they're for you to you know, sort out with God. So I can come back in my prayers and I can wrestle with those questions. If I have understandings that are unfolding, I can talk about those with the God in my scripture study and hope for more light and more knowledge. It doesn't mean I need to take all those understandings and dump them on my YSA class or on you guys because they're still unfolding. I don't have a fullness yet. And it's not... It's not necessarily for general consumption, but it is edifying to me. And I feel like that's what Paul's trying to say. He's like, start to use your discernment to understand some things are to be brought to the congregation and they will unify. Some things are just for you to sort out with God. And isn't that a beautiful thing? I just kind of love verse 28. And then in 31, he talks about how he wants everybody to have this gift. For ye all may prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. This is stewardship. Right? He's trying to direct us to focus on our stewardship and to focus on order. We worship a God of order, not confusion. In fact, I think it's the title of this week's lesson because that's how he teaches us. So we can't all shout out at the same time. We can't have big, raucous sacrament meetings. We have to have order so that there can be harmony and unity. And then you can see that added to in 32 and 33. This is where I feel like you get more guidance about stewardship. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. I think he's trying to teach us a little bit about authority, that the gift of prophecy is a beautiful thing, and it should be used in your stewardship. I am not one who will receive prophetic understandings that are outside of my stewardship. <laughs> I will not receive, you know, the gift of prophecy that Paul is talking about is testifying of Jesus Christ. There are those in leadership positions who have revelation for other things. And I need to, I need to be subject to those, right? I need to be subject to those who are in authority positions that can teach me and help me. And I think he's trying to 
hedge us in a little bit there to be cautious about how we use this gift. Okay, then I have to warn you, in 34 and 35, there's some terrible uh, phrasing. It's just, in most people, in fact, you can see in the Come Follow Me manual, nobody knows why these are here. This is when he talks about, let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Okay, can I just tell you guys, I was really nervous, so I didn't start putting things on YouTube until almost all the way through the Old Testament year, because I really liked the camaraderie and the warmth I felt in the course. And I knew as soon as I put things on YouTube, I would be subject to a lot of opinions and a lot of them would be grumpy. <laughs> and I just wasn't sure my heart could take that because so much of my heart is in this course um, that I just wasn't sure. And then I got up the guts, felt like it was the right thing to do. Got up the guts to post on on YouTube. You guys, the very first comment I got on YouTube was these verses about women should not prophesy, women should not teach, and should be kept silent. And I was just like, see, see, this is why I shouldn't be here. And what was really interesting is in those moments when, I mean, I deleted the comment, I, I didn't need it, but it was, it reminded me of a situation that I had back with Jack. This was so interesting the way the Spirit brings things back to my remembrance. When Jack's diagnosis came, uh, he was four and we, he has autism and he was diagnosed at four from this doctor that was from out of state. I happened to be visiting Jason's parents. They had a connection with a pediatric neurologist. They were worried about Jack. So they helped connect us. So I didn't know this doctor at all. He spent three minutes with Jack and me and then gave me this diagnosis of autism. And he started to describe what I should expect of Jack. And I can still remember his words. He basically described it like Rain Man. And he said, you can expect that he will live with you the rest of your life. You can expect that he probably won't be able to communicate very much. You can like, he gave me this big long list of things. And then he looked at me really weird and said, you know, normally mothers cry at this part. And I didn't cry because the whole time he was talking, it's like the spirit was teaching my head. I don't know how to describe it. You guys, I felt peace. I was like, that's not happening for me. That's not happening for Jack. It's not that I didn't believe it could happen. I just felt assured that that wasn't Jack's future. His future would be hard. And now I had words to use to understand what to study and how to help him. But his future was not the future that this doctor was describing. And that's how I felt when I read that guy's YouTube comment, you guys, that these verses don't apply to me. And whatever the situation was in Corinth and whatever prompted this from Paul, this is not how God feels about his daughters, and it doesn't represent truth. So I don't know what's happened here, or if we just have a piece of the story. What I do know is what our prophets today teach about the value of women, especially about the value of women prophesying and teaching and testifying of Jesus Christ. This morning, as like part of my pump up to get ready to record today, I listened to that incredible talk from President Nelson about the value of women, a plea to my sisters. There's quotes in it from in the in my notes and also in the Come Follow Me manual. But I would encourage you, men and women, to go and listen to that full talk. If there's any piece of you that doubts the worth of women, especially women as leaders and teachers and voices in Zion, that talk will push all that darkness out of your head and fill it with light. That's what I experienced today. So you don't need to worry about those verses. I do think Paul's intention is always good, but what we know from the rest of Paul's words, especially what we studied last week and the week before, this doctrine about women counters Paul's other teachings. He already taught us that women can prophesy. He already taught us that women are in the congregation. In fact, the Savior's whole ministry demonstrates that this is not his doctrine. And certainly everything we've learned in the restoration from, you know, that beautiful section written to Emma Smith and her 
call to teach and to do more. And what we hear from prophets today, everything counters these two verses. So I don't think you have to get stuck there. And I certainly don't think you have to doubt your worth or the worth of the women around you. Another thing that helps with these tricky verses is to look at the JST. So you can see that Joseph Smith shifted that word to rule, meaning there's something about authority here, not, not usurping authority, not complaining against authority. And that guidance, I feel like, is given to men and women in these verses, especially if you read them in a bigger lens. So if you look from like 31 to 37, you can see guidance to men and women to be careful. Like in 37, it says, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. I think this is a call to alignment for men and women, that our words that we speak and the prophecies, those testimonies of Christ that we utter need to be in alignment. In fact, if we our hearts are in the right place, we will acknowledge the prophets of God. We will acknowledge the testimonies of the apostles of God. So I think there's alignment that needs to happen, and you can get a better understanding of that when you use the Joseph Smith translation. But I love where it ends in 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. God loves his men and he loves his women and he needs he needs us to work in harmony together. It's that same talk from Sister Bingham that we mentioned last week. It's this empowering each other to accomplish the works of God. That's what I think Paul is trying to get us to do. I love where Paul goes next in 15. Just the same way we've been talking for well, maybe weeks and months now, that if you have questions about these finer points of doctrine, like the gift of tongues, where you should seek answers is going back to the fundamentals. We should focus in and make sure that those fundamental doctrines are steadfast in our hearts. And a pivotal one is understanding the resurrection. It seems as if at this point in time, They've lost a little bit of the ground they had already won. I don't know if there's like a Sherem, you know, antichrist type person that's putting these thoughts in their minds or, or if this is just something that atrophies when we stop being, when we stop following after our testimonies, maybe this is just a natural place that the mortal side of us goes, but they seem to be losing their ground on the resurrection, whether it even occurred and whether it will occur for everybody else. And so that's where Paul focuses in, in chapter 15, in a big, big way, because this is a pivotal doctrine. You know, if you've watched those YouTube videos, my kids love these, where there's people who set up those gigantic domino trains, you know, the ones that like take over an entire gym. And then there's just this one domino that they push at the very beginning, and it creates this ripple effect that courses throughout the entire you know, arena. That's kind of what Paul's trying to help us understand. If you lose an ability to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, every other domino of faith topples. It has to, because everything hinges on that miracle and on the plan of salvation that it centers around. Like it is, he wants them to understand, like, look what's happening to your faith. You, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to help you understand that resurrection is real. So that's where he focuses his testimony. If you look in one, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, meaning he's already taught them this. They've just forgotten a little bit, which ye also have received and wherein ye stand by which also ye are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. If you will hold on to those fundamentals of the gospel that I've already taught you, those dominoes can stand back up. And then in three, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I had received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 
that simple, plain testimony of an apostle. Remember, it's, he's a special witness of Jesus Christ. It's the exact same witness you'll hear from our apostles today. That They testify of those key fundamentals, that the Savior lived, that he died for us, and that he rose again and lives today. That is the core of their testimonies. And that's where Paul begins. And then he basically says, but you don't need to take my word for it. There are others. I love this because it's it speaks to the natural doubts we all have. You know, they they would maybe doubt one man's testimony. So then he starts to stretch it and say, but there are so many more. So if you look in the verses, you can see he was seen of Cephas, meaning Peter, that he was seen of 500 brethren at once, some of whom have died, but most of which are living. You can go talk to them and communicate. Like, did this happen? Tell me, do, do you know him? He, he was seen of James. He was seen of others. In fact, I love that he was seen of James. Because remember, James is the Savior's brother who doubted his divinity. I don't know how much of his lifetime he he was in doubt, but we know during the Savior's ministry, his brother did not believe. So I love this little piece, you know, that at some point the Savior came to his brother, his, you know, half-brother, I guess, and witnessed to him. And then James becomes this mighty witness for others. He'll be basically like the bishop of Jerusalem, and he'll be a mighty force in this early church, but he has his own experience with, with Jesus Christ. You also see that there are many apostles who are witnessing. In fact, Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. I love the way he says it. For I am the least of the apostles in verse 9, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. This to me sounds like the testimonies of Alma the Younger, for the rest of his lifetime, or the sons of Mosiah for the rest of their lives, you know, that they, they see themselves as someone who set the church back a little bit. And so then they spend the entire rest of their lives teaching. I don't think it's that they're trying to make up ground. I don't think they're trying to say like, well, I caused so much damage, so I better do a lot of good. I actually think it's that they've experienced firsthand grace. You know, Alma knows what it feels like to be harrowed up, and he knows what it feels like to be forgiven. And that contrast ignites a fire in him and he wants to take it to anyone who will listen because he knows their fate otherwise and so he you can't hold him back like he wants to share that good news of the gospel that's where paul is too he's lived another life and he's persecuted the church of god and now he's seen what grace can do and so he invites anyone who will listen to be a consumer of that grace you know lean in and come boldly to the throne of grace and ask for the help you need because it's available to you when you go a little further, he says in 13, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. This is the beginning of that domino train. He's actually going to go through several of those first dominoes. He's like, if you can't believe in the resurrection of the Savior, then the next thing that follows is the life of the Savior. And then the apostles' testimonies are in vain. In fact, faith is in vain and the apostles are liars. And like he starts, you see these dominoes of darkness start to fall. This idea of like, Everything falls apart if we can't understand and believe in the resurrection. What I like about this, especially with the modern lens, is we have prophets and apostles today who teach how to put those dominoes back up. There's a great talk from Elder Christopherson where I felt like this is what he was doing. He was basically saying, but if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's almost like there's a thread that connects the tops of all of the dominoes. <laughs> because if you can just pick that domino back up and believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you can believe in prophets. You can believe in the words of the apostles. You can believe in the Book of Mormon and in the restoration of the gospel to Joseph Smith. Like All those dominoes 
come up with a belief in the resurrection. So I just found myself fascinated by that understanding that that's, uh, that's the reason I think in the last conference, we heard so many messages about the value of Easter and about teaching our kids about the glory of the resurrection. Cause if they can believe that domino, Oh, so many other ones stand up in the process. So that's where Paul's focusing. Like, you know, he, he wants to rivet our attention on this miracle. So you can see, he says in 18, then they which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. That's like the end of this domino chain. Like all those we've lost, all the people that have died now and in the past are just gone. Without the resurrection, they are gone. And then in 19, if in this life we... If, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And then 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. This is when Paul shifts his tone and starts to talk about the hope. He's like, this is all the negative that could happen if this wasn't true. But I'm here today to tell you that it is true. And I have seen the Savior. I mean, Paul has had his own encounter with the Savior. It sounds like multiple times from what we've read. He is a strong witness that the risen Lord lives. So he says, basically, he is the first fruits. What I like about this, and I didn't realize this until this morning when I was studying my Book of Mormon, is that first fruits concept is what we studied in the Old Testament. It's this idea of at the beginning of the harvest or at the beginning of the season, you offer up first fruits to God. I was even, Jason and I were in Maui with my parents um, maybe six months or so ago, and I was walking on the beach and I happened to find this like historic monument that was an altar, basically. And I read the inscription on the plaque and it said, this is where they would offer the first fish of every kind, like every kind of fish that they would get from the ocean. One of them would be offered up. The very first one would be offered up to the gods and then that would bless the rest of the season. I think that's the principle that's existed, you know, since Adam and Eve's day. I just love that we see the Savior as the first fruits. He is the first one who had experienced death, who comes back. He is the first resurrected being. It is this powerful witness. What I love about it when you add in the piece of the Book of Mormon is it teaches that the righteous are those who he will offer as the first fruits of what he is gathering. I just love this. I can't remember. Let me see if I wrote it down. It's in Jacob 4. Okay, Jacob 4, verse 11. This is when he says he's going to present those who are righteous as the first fruits unto God. I just love this piece of it. He is seeking after every soul. It's the beginning of this great harvest that will happen. And those who chose to listen and believe are the first fruits that he offers up as a presentation to God and then goes out and seeks all that will listen. I, I just love the Jacob edition when you go in there. If you go in 22, you can see this pivotal phrase. It says, for as, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Because of the fall, we were able to access this mortal experience, right? We, it opened up pain. It opened up death. It opened up all kinds of hard, but it opened up a lot of learning and a lot of joy at the same time. Because of Christ, all men shall live. You know, they, they call um, Adam, the first Adam, meaning the first man. And then they call Christ the second Adam, which means he's the first one to have a resurrected body. Adam is the first one to have a natural mortal body. And Christ is the first one to have this perfected resurrected body. So you'll see some of those references in these verses, but it's like Paul's trying to teach the whole plan of salvation in this, in this way that they could understand and wrap their heads around. And I just think it's beautiful. And then in 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That's the promise, right? That's the incredible promise that we all hope for, that we all choose to believe in that domino, that first domino, because we want that promise. And there's dozens, dozens of talks about the power of the resurrection and conquering death. 
One of my very favorites was from Paul Johnson. He was talking about his daughter, who sounds like she was a young mom when she passed away of cancer. And I loved, he cited some of her words, and she basically talked about how Christ has cured cancer. Because at some point, all of us will be perfected. All of us will be healed. Whether you lived a good life or not, the promise of these verses is that all men will be brought back. All men will be resurrected and have a chance to live again. And that is a momentous thing. And you could plug in any ailment or any problem into that cancer phrase. In fact, I think he says that in his conference talk, but it helped my heart. (laughs) I just think there's incredible promise in that gift uh, that he he can overcome. In fact, he has. That's the last enemy, 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. There is nothing bigger. There is no greater miracle. He conquered death and hell. And so we get to rejoice in what comes after. Um, I love it when you think about it as those verses about every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. I talked to you guys, if you were in the Old Testament course with me, I we've talked about this before, but I had such a clear understanding of that verse when I was reading it once that it was... um that the reason we, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess is because we all can, you know, we will miraculously be made whole again. It's a process. You can go in the notes and learn more about that, but there is a promise that we all will be made whole. And if I'm looking at all the people around me who I've seen live in broken bodies or wounded bodies or disfigured bodies, and all of them are made whole. If I see all my own weaknesses and problems be made whole, how can I stand, right? We all get to experience that miracle firsthand. That's a pretty monumental promise. And for those who didn't experience it in their lifetime, you have the promise of 28 and 29. This is where he talks about baptisms for the dead. I just, we don't have a lot of context. We don't have a lot of details. But in these verses, he talks about like, what would be the point of baptisms for the dead that you guys are currently doing if there was no resurrection? And he almost says it that quickly, like, like they would understand it and acknowledge, oh yeah, that makes sense. We just don't have any more details in the New Testament about it, but it does help reaffirm my witness that we, this is the restored church of Jesus Christ, because we are the only ones who practice this, this idea of baptisms for the dead and standing in proxy for others. In fact, there were a couple quotes from prophets this week that talked about how it's a, a, a nearness to the gift of the Savior that we get to stand in proxy and provide this service for others. Not in the not in its depth or majesty, but in its similitude. When we stand in proxy, we are taking on and sacrificing so that others can be blessed. And there's a closeness to the Savior that comes with that. And I just thought that was beautiful. In 34, Paul calls us and he says, awake to righteousness and sin not. I think it's the reason he wants us to focus so much on the resurrection is when you really wrap your head and even your spirit around that miracle and begin to believe and let that desire kind of work in you like Alma teaches, you have a desire to wake up. I think it's the reason Alma has those same words in his sermons where he's like, awake and shake off the chains. It's this motivating thing that as soon as we begin to believe in the gift and the miracle of the resurrection, everything else doesn't seem worth holding on to. And that's what Paul's trying to get them to do. But it's interesting, in 35, it's almost like he's wrestling with some who 
want to understand in their mind and in their heart. They're asking, but how? Like, how does a resurrection body come back? And you can understand why they would have questions. What I like is that Paul teaches to both. He doesn't just say, just believe me spiritually and get over it. He starts to try to explain how a resurrected body can possibly come back. Because remember, a lot of the people at this time thought that the body was something to be cast off. So he uses this analogy of a seed. And you can go to the notes and learn a little bit more about this. I loved some of the commentary I read gosh, I can't remember which apostle it was, it was like a hundred years ago. And he compared this to a factory that had metal filings. And he said, the metal filings would get combined with the copper filings in this factory and careful people in the factory would gather them all up together and put them in a barrel. And then they would take this gigantic magnet and it would only pull out the, the metal filings and all the copper would stay. And he's like, but if you didn't understand magnets, you would look at that giant barrel and think those things can never be separated. But then you see a magnet come in and you're like, oh yeah, in a flash, they can be separated and it's perfectly separated. He's like, don't you think God has a magnet of sorts? These are not his words. You should go in the notes and read it. But I just loved that idea. He's like, don't doubt the goodness and the abilities of God. If he needs to resurrect bodies who have been scattered to the winds or have been at the bottom of the sea or whatever the circumstances were, he can do it. He has a celestial magnet that will handle all of this. And that's what I think Paul's trying to say. Because he basically teaches them with this metaphor of grain, that the grain continues to thrive and it continues to grow and it becomes something better. It sheds this seed form and becomes a more perfected form in its fullness. And that's kind of what a resurrected body is. It will look the same. It will sound the same. In fact, one of the prophets I read this week said that as we are resurrected, we'll begin with the same scars and the same issues that we had in life. And then those will become perfected. It's a process. I don't know how long that process takes, but I think in some ways that might be comforting. If there's people who are recognizable in certain ways, you'll recognize them again. And then over time, all of us will become a perfected version of ourselves. And then he talks about that there are different kinds of bodies. This is going to feel a lot like section 76 because you get inklings, right? You get, this is a restored gospel. So you see a fullness or a more full picture in section 76 than you get from the New Testament. But but the threads, those golden celestial threads are all in there. So if you look in 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. The JST adds in that we have all three listed in that verse. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for one star differeth from another star in glory. Paul's teaching the same concepts that Joseph Smith taught in section 76, that when we are resurrected, our bodies will be different from each other. We don't have a lot of data points about what that looks like. I don't know exactly what a celestial body can do that a terrestrial or a telestial can't, except for the fact that we know that they can't increase. That's something that's limited to just that celestial, that upper celestial glory. But I think there's power in understanding that the bodies will be different. I think, again, it motivates us to seek after the good, to set down whatever sins are besetting us and seek after something greater because the promise is substantial. Do you guys remember in the Doctrine and Covenants when we studied this together and I got into all the details because I was curious about the difference in light. You know, when he's talking about the moon and the sun and the stars, it's not so much about size. In fact, at least in the Doctrine and Covenants, it's talking about brightness. And so I started to get curious about the brightness variance between the sun and the moon and the moon and the stars. And do you guys remember we did an object lesson about this where 
Like the difference between the brightness of a star as viewed from Earth and the sun as viewed from Earth was the difference between a pinhole and like a spotlight that would cover most of North America. That is a really big difference. So I just don't think we should take this lightly. I'm not pretending that I know by some any kind of science what the difference is between these bodies, but I do know that the difference is substantial. That's what Paul taught. It's what Joseph Smith taught. He's saying it is worth it to strive. Keep striving. You want to seek after that celestial glory because that's the glory of your heavenly parents. So why would you want anything less? So then he talks about corruption and incorruption. This idea of here you're in a body that can age and decay and deteriorate and slowly fall apart. <laughs> and when you go to that next world, that won't be the case anymore. You will step into something that is steadfast. I just thought this is when you can see more directions, like in 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. That's where he's talking about the difference between Adam as the first mortal man and the Savior as the first resurrected being. There'll be many others, right? Even at the resurrection of the Savior, after him, there were many others who were resurrected. But he is the beginning, the same way Adam was the very beginning of all the mortal men. In 49, it says, and as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. I just love that verse. I don't even know entirely what it means, but I think he's saying you'll have both. All men, when they are resurrected, will have, you'll have the image of the earthly, which I take to mean like, you'll still look like yourself, look like your parents. And, you know, we will be, those things come with us, but you'll also have the image of the heavenly. You'll have pieces that are part of you that are divine, something that lasts. If you go in the notes, you can learn a lot of this relates to blood to some way. There will be no blood in our bodies. There will be bodies of flesh and bones, but not bodies of flesh and blood. So that blood is replaced by something heavenly. And that's what he's trying to teach us. And then in 51, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Uh, he believes, Paul, similar to Joseph Smith, that the second coming is soon. I think he just hopes that the second coming is soon, the same way all of us hope that it's soon. And he's saying, all of us are going to be changed and not everybody's going to die. I don't know if that's specific to his time, or maybe he's thinking about John. I don't know what that means, but I think there's promise in it. He's saying, I can't explain all of this, but let me tell you a little thing I can say. And so he teaches them about that. And then in 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That twinkling of an eye is the promise that in the millennium, there won't be death, right? That's just a marvelous promise that there will still be mortal people. We will still live. There will be births and marriages and lots of good work will happen during the millennium, but there will be no death. There will be no weeping and mourning and loss because you'll change in the twinkling of an eye. Isaiah teaches that it's at age 100, but I don't know. Maybe there's, it's hard to know if that's an accurate translation or what that is, but at some point, you will be changed and then you will have a different kind of body, a resurrected body. And I think there's promise in all of that. So in 53, it's the invitation for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. It's this, uh, you have to let go of one in order to get the other. You'll have to really forgive this interpretation. But when I was talking to my boys about this before, we compared it to Wolverine <laughs> because he basically has to go through a process kind of like this. He has to set down and submit himself to a process that like takes over his bones and makes them metal and cool. I can't even remember the name of the metal. My boys could tell you. But I think it's that concept of like you set down what is corruptible and what can't last and you exchange it for something that is mighty and eternal. In fact, that's where he goes next. 
So in 54, so when this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on an immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's what happens when we all submit and we all receive this resurrected body. Death is swallowed up. It's, I really like the word choice. We studied this a little bit in the Book of Mormon, but I think swallowed up doesn't mean all the pain is forgotten. It means it's superseded by the good. The same way in childbirth, I can remember how hard it was. I can remember how often I threw up. I can remember all the pains, maybe not all of them. I can remember a lot of the pains, but the joy I experienced since that point supersedes everything else. And that's what I think it means to have death swallowed up in victory because what we gain is lasting and eternal. In 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. In fact, in 55, it says, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? It's like this, that domino, because it stands, everything else stands up with it. So there is no fear. I don't think it means we don't have to, I don't think we have to be ashamed of fear and pain that we experience when we lose someone now. There is pain and there is loss and that loss is evidence of the love that we have for a person. But the promise is there's no lasting sting. There's nothing that can impact us eternally because death is conquered and we don't need to be afraid. 57, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is my favorite, maybe of the whole chapter, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the, in the works of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. All of this teaching about the resurrection is to, for me, to get to this verse. He's like, if this is true, then act, do, abound in good works. In fact, I love the phrase, be steadfast and immovable, because those are words you could use for a resurrected body, right? They are steadfast and they are unchanging and they are eternal. Steadfast and immovable doesn't seem like something that can happen in this world. But what I think Paul is trying to teach is, in your spiritual sense, you can choose to be this. Your body might decay and break down and be subject to all kinds of illness and cancer and all kinds of things, but your spirit, you get to choose. And I encourage you, based on this doctrine, to be steadfast and immovable, unchanging. Set aside the corruptible parts of your spirit and exchange them for something incorruptible. Hold on to this truth that you're learning and hold it so tightly that it changes you. That's Paul's motivation. Be anxiously engaged in a good cause and use this as your motive. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be anxiously engaged and you can be confident in the goodness of God. And that should empower you to do all other things. Paul's going to wrap things up in chapter 16. This is where he's going to talk about their tithes and offerings that he's going to take them to Jerusalem. Some people think, I read a scholar who said this was about a famine that was happening. Another one thinks this is maybe the beginning of the church welfare system. Uh, I don't really know, but for whatever reason, he's taking their funds to Jerusalem. And then he talks about how he hopes to be with them. Because remember, this is not him in person. This is his epistle sent to them to nourish them. I think it's because I've been studying so much in Jacob 5. So in my YSA class, we were studying Jacob 5 these last two weeks. And one of the parts I love is how often the Lord goes to the nether parts of the vineyard. You know, those far off places that have just one tree or maybe two trees, you know, that had wild fruit at some time that he's been cultivating this long time. And I feel like that's what Paul's doing with these epistles. He hopes to be with these saints. That's what he says in 6 and 7. He hopes to winter with them. He hopes to stay with them, despite the fact that they live in this port city, party town that everybody thinks is like full of debauchery and sin. He wants 
to be among them because he loves this part of the vineyard. He loves these people and he wants to cultivate them. He keeps sending epistles to nourish them while he's away, but he hopes to be with them. I think it's the same thing our apostles feel for all of us today. They can't be in our wards and our branches, but they send their epistles as nourishment, right? To enrich us, no matter how far out, how nether I am out in the vineyard, they send guidance and inspiration to us so that we can feast on that for a little while and be strengthened in it until they can come, until we can see them in person. I also think his guidance is cool in nine. He says, I wish I could be with you, but there's a great and effectual door that has opened. I, we don't know what this is referring to, at least I don't, but I love it compared to both what we read in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's some opportunity to grow the kingdom of God has opened and he is going to take it. It's not just a great door, it's an effectual door. It reminds me of what I read in the Book of Mormon with Ammon and King Lamoni. When King Lamoni converts to the gospel, an effectual door opens. When his father is also converted and opens up, you know, and sends that decree out that says the missionaries can preach, this great and effectual door opens and thousands of hearts are changed. That's what Paul is teaching about. He's saying, this opportunity is, is arisen. What I think is really interesting is what you see at the end of 9. So he says, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Whenever a great and effectual door opens, Satan swoops in. You know, it's the same thing that happens when we build temples and when we open up missions. He goes on the alert and he sends his, you know, best efforts to try and thwart it. But the promise is, you have the Lord on your side. Paul knows with this great and effectual door, whatever it is, with the Lord on his side, he can accomplish it. And I just think there's a sense of confidence that he has in it. And then in 11, he warns about not despising who he can send. So Paul talks about how he can't be with them right now because he has to go take care of this great and effectual door, but he's going to send Timothy in his stead. This is interesting to me because I think if Paul's an apostle, then that would mean Timothy is probably like an area authority or a local leader of some kind. And he asked them in 11, let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him, conduct him forth in peace. I think there's good guidance here for all of us. I, I think we all have local leadership, not just priesthood leadership, but, you know, leaders of our relief societies and things like that. And it can get tempting to hope for something grander. You know, the way you might hope that general authority will come to your state conference. Or I can remember when I was first, when we first moved here, I was called in the Relief Society presidency of this board. And I was, I think this first or second counselor. And at the time, Julie Beck was the president and I found myself just wanting to be her friend. I knew I never would ever meet her even, but I loved the way she taught and the way she thought and the way she articulated her thoughts. And I found myself thinking like, oh, if I could be her friend, if I could just go on a hike with Julie Beck, I would learn so much and I would know what our Relief Society needs. And I, you know, like I found myself <laughs> not really aspiring to be her friend, but you know, like I was just wishing that somehow I could connect with her. And then the spirit corrected me and basically said, you need to talk to your Relief Society president. You know, I was the counselor in the presidency, but the impression I got was go talk to Ricky. She was our Relief Society president. She was an incredible woman of faith. And I was like, she has been set apart and she has been authorized to use priesthood power to do her calling, I should talk to her. I should go to lunch with her and say, what can I do better? And how do we take Sister Beck's words and apply them to our particular Relief Society? I just think sometimes we we look beyond the mark and I we have to, we have to trust uh, and we have to show kindness and compassion and support for those who are close by. And I think you get guidance for that in chapter 16. I also love what you see in 13 and 14. So where the previous chapter, I 
you know, like buoyed you up, especially for women to go and listen to President Nelson's words to, from a plea to my sisters and believe in the power of women and believe in their ability to preach and teach. I love this one for men because I think where Paul ends this in 16 is just powerful for the men of the church. He says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you, quit you like men and be strong. And then in 14, let all your things be done with charity. Okay. Here's why I love this couple verses. First, quit you like men is a weird phrase, but it basically just means behave like men and be strong. And then he tells you how to behave like men and be strong. And that's in 14. Let all your things be done with charity. I just think this is surprising because charity is something we always associate with the Relief Society. It's in our seal and our motto. But charity is something that never faileth for men and women. And I think he's saying that the epitome of men is someone who has a heart full of charity. Remember, charity isn't just service. Charity is seeing people with Christ-like eyes and having a pure love for them. That is what it means to be strong like men. You see that all over the place in scripture, right? Like all those mighty prophets of the Book of Mormon. You think about King Benjamin and you think about Nephi and you think about Alma and even Captain Moroni. You, you see people who are strong like men, powerful examples of what it means to be a man of God who are full of charity. They are full of the love of Christ for their people. They will put their lives on the line to help their people. They will serve their entire lifetimes to benefit their people. That's what it means to be a man of God. And I just kind of love that piece. In fact, I loved it when I read President Nelson's Guide to the Men. So in 2019, there's this call to action for the men. I can't remember the title of the talk, but it's in the notes where he basically said, we need to do this. We need to stand like men. We need to behave like men and be full of charity. And we need to change. It was this like, you know, pep talk for the men of the church. So I think there's value in both. There's guidance from President Nelson about the women of the church, and there's guidance to the men of the church. And boy, when you combine both of those with the words of Paul, I think there's really riveting guidance in it. So I hope you enjoy it. You can find all that in the notes. Then he talks about the blessings he's received from the saints so far. He thanks some of them. Because remember, this is the end of his epistle, so he's going to thank some of the saints. I just like the way it's phrased in 18. It says, For they have refreshed my soul or my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge ye them that are such. There are those who are not in leadership positions, not in positions of authority in any way, but they have refreshed. And I found myself thinking, that's what I hope to do for, whether it's my local leaders or apostles or anybody that I could pray for, that they because of my efforts, feel refreshed in their spirit. I think that's a good goal for all of us. Then he wraps up, he says in 21 that he wrote this with his own hand. Even though he has a scribe that probably wrote a lot of the words themselves, he finishes it off with his own hand, and then he gives this guidance. In 22, there's a bit of a curse that, <laughs> that he puts in here, basically saying, like, if you choose not to believe, your, your progress will be stopped. You'll be stunted. And then in 23, the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And 24, my love be with you all in Christ, in Christ Jesus. The reason I like that combination is it's similar to what we see in Doctrine and Covenant 77. So this is where he says that, that grace may instruct and edify. I think the reason Paul wants grace to stay with them is because he knows that grace will strengthen them while he's not there. You know, he can't be with them. He can't always be writing them epistles. He's got a lot of people to care for. But if grace stays, then they can still progress and grow. And then when you go to his love, that's what you see in 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. This to me is, his invitation is, if, if you hope for more from me, if you wish I could be among you, seek Jesus. If you, I think it's actually something we can apply to everybody that we love. This idea of, if there's somebody you miss, or there's somebody you hope to hear from, 
seek the words of Jesus Christ and let that be a comfort to you. I think that's his guidance. You'll feel my love for you as you study the words of the Savior. And isn't that a beautiful thing? I hope my kids and my grandkids, when I'm gone, seek the words of Jesus Christ to hear what I would say, to hear, to feel my love. I think there's beautiful guidance in that verse. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is the creative side of week 36. So my goal with this portion, as always, is just to inspire creative teaching. Not because I think you have to put on a show. Remember this whole week's study was about the plainness and the simpleness of the way, but I do think there is value in catching someone's eye. <laughs> I think sometimes, especially when it comes to our kids, it helps to teach them in different ways because different object lessons and different styles of teaching will catch different people's attention. And then the spirit can swoop in and do its mighty work. So I think there's value in teaching in a variety of ways. And I'm just hoping to inspire a little bit of creativity in yours. So let me walk you through the first, the object lessons first. I will give you just a quick rundown of what they are and why we're going to teach them and talk to you about the supplies you're going to need. And then for those of you who are in the full course or listening on the private podcast, I'll walk you through each one individually. And then I'll also give you access to all the notes that I use to teach and all the printables so that you have all the tools at your disposal and you can add your own spin or twist to make it work for your group. Okay, here's your supplies list for these three object lessons. First, since so much of Paul's message this week was about the gift of tongues and comparing it to the gift of prophecy and why we should value one over the other, I needed some cool way to teach the gift of tongues. And I think I found it, you guys. Okay, I'm calling this a cryptography calendar. I have to tell you, I cannot take credit for this idea. I found it on Instructables. If you guys don't follow that site, I just think they have the most bizarre, fun ideas. <laughs> anyway, the guy who invented this made it out of wood and you know, like 3D printed stuff. I just took what he created and put it on paper so that you could take it into your classes. But the idea behind this one is talking about how these weird random marks are completely indiscernible. They have no understanding that can be applied to them until you use this fancy slider to isolate certain parts of the text so that you can read it. It's a, a really easy way to help your kids understand why the gift of tongues is still a spiritual gift and something that comes from God, but that it's not intended to teach the doctrine. To teach the doctrine, we use a much simpler approach called the gift of prophecy. And we'll talk all about the difference with this object lesson. Okay, second one. Oh, that one you just need cardstock in the printable and you'll be good to go on that one. The second one involves a lot more cardstock and another printable, but it's for a whole different purpose. So I think that those two verses that teach about baptisms for the dead in the New Testament are pivotal this week. Not so much that we have a lot of understanding about why they practiced it or how they practiced it, but just the fact that we know that they did in fact practice baptisms for the dead in the days of Paul. That's a huge understanding to have. And it's something that should help our kids value what we know today that we have the restoration of the gospel so we know why we practice baptism for the dead and what it's for. So I wanted to give you some tools to help accomplish that. I'll direct you to some cool videos and other things that you can learn more about baptisms for the dead. But the printable is this little booklet. Similar to what I did last year in the Old Testament, I gave you a little booklet to hold family name cards so that when you took cards to the temple, they didn't get all rumpled in your bag. I'm giving you the amped up version this week and I'll walk you through what it is. But basically inside that you're going to find these little sleeves that can hold family name cards so that your kids or you can prepare names for the temple and then take them to the temple and keep them in a neat orderly way. I actually think we see that a lot in this week's study. You see the Lord call for order and organization and structure in things that are of great worth. And baptism for the dead is one of those. So I'll walk you through this in just a second. 
Okay, third one. There is some really pivotal doctrine about the kingdoms of glory and the resurrected bodies that will inhabit those kingdoms in this week's study. And it piggybacks on, or maybe I could say the restoration piggybacks on this one, but what we learn from Joseph Smith in the Doctrine and Covenants, especially in 76, adds fullness and richness and understanding to what Paul began with these verses. And I wanted my kids to have a better grasp of that. What resurrected bodies are like, how they will be different from each other based on what kind of body you have. That The body that you have determines a little bit where you belong and that there are different levels. So the, an easy way to teach that is with creating levels in a glass jar. So this is actually a really similar lesson to what we taught in section 76. So if you're in the course, you can go back to the Doctrine and Covenants and learn more about why we taught it there. To create it, you just need to have some different layers of material. So for us, the easiest ones that you can always find on hand, we have oil, like vegetable oil, water with just a fraction of food coloring so that you can see where that line is. And at the bottom is just corn syrup, like a light corn syrup or something heavy like that will work great. And you're going to talk about the differentiation that happens between the three of them, how they don't really mix. And I'll show you a cool way to teach that in just a second. All right, get those supplies on hand and then you'll be good to go, you guys. All right, you guys, that's it for week 36. I hope you enjoy it. This is your very last week of 1 Corinthians, so I hope you feel a little more solid in this book of scripture now that we've been through it together. I know for me, all this study has helped me profoundly. I think my understanding of 1 Corinthians before was kind of at a surface level, and now I've taken things a lot deeper. So I hope that happens for you as well. If you want to go a little deeper, I would strongly encourage you to go into the notes. That's a big Google Doc designed to help you apply the teachings of Paul to our day. And the way I do that is by connecting you to modern revelation. So from conference talks from our apostles, from the prophet, from women leaders of the church, from previous prophets, anytime I find a patch of prophetic commentary about these scriptures that I think applies, I try to plug it into the notes. So they're usually 30 or 40 pages, but I think they're worth your time. If you're hoping to go a little deeper or you struggle with certain areas, go into the notes and I promise you'll get a little more understanding. You're also welcome to join me on Instagram, you guys, 10 a.m. Monday. Um, there's usually a good, it's almost like a separate institute class, <laughs> I feel like, because I see the same names and it's kind of getting comfortable over there in Instagram. 10 a.m. Mondays, you can, that's mountain time. You can pop on and listen to some of the insights that I couldn't quite fit into the podcast and videos that I think are worth it. There, there are a few things that I wrote on my post-its that I did not remember to say, and I hope to add those into the live on Monday. But otherwise, I just hope you get into your scriptures. Whether you use these object lessons, the notes, or any of the commentary you heard here, I hope you just get into the verses yourself and see what the Spirit has to teach you. All the tools I'm providing are just designed to help help supplement that. But my goal is to get you into your scriptures yourself, because I think that's where you'll find the most good. It's certainly where I find the most good. So I hope it helps. All right, you guys, enjoy your week, and I will see you on Monday. Thank you.